Welcome to the Rev Engine Podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders get clarity on how to align sales and marketing, build a high-performing revenue engine, and accelerate revenue growth for their organizations. I'm your host, Jeff Davis, author of award-winning book, Create Togetherness, and founder of Rev Engine. Let's jump into the show. Hey, everybody, it is Jeff Davis with another episode of the Rev Engine podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders strategically align sales and marketing, transform their revenue engine, and accelerate revenue growth. Today's guest is Douglas Burdett. We actually met a few years ago. I don't want to age myself, so I'll just say a few years ago. I had the privilege to be on his podcast, the Marketing Book Podcast, when I wrote my book, Great Togetherness, back in 2019. I don't know if he knows this, but he was actually on my bucket list of podcasts to get on. I felt like to legitimize that my book is a real book. I reached out and, and uh, he very graciously said, yes, book was, you know, I guess approved to be on the show. And actually we had a really great conversation. I, I think I called him the Oprah of book reviews because the, the level of detail that he was able to get into in the conversation we had was really, really great. So a couple things about him before I let him tell a little bit about himself before I kind of take up all the time in the air in the room, so to say. He's currently the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, as I say. If you have not put that on, the, on your list, definitely do. He does some really good, insightful, deep dives into marketing, B2B marketing books, as well as sales and revenue. So although it's the Marketing Book Podcast, there definitely is a wide range of topics uh, that he gets into that are very insightful. And then last but not least, he's a founding principal of Sales Artillery, which is his organization, which we'll talk about because I think they have a really unique business model and how they're helping B2B organizations do it differently and do it better. So uh, Douglas, hopefully that wasn't too verbose of an introduction, but I want to hand it over to you to let people know a little bit about you, your background, how you got here, and then we'll dive into the conversation. Sure. Thanks. Well, it's great to be back. Great to speak to you again. And you're inflating my, what my importance is on these books. When I started this podcast in eight years ago, the only concern I had was that there wouldn't be 52 books every year. Well, evidently there are. <laughs> There's lots of books. Oh, yeah. There. And then some. Yeah. And now I get them all the time. So the topic of your book sales and marketing alignment is one of my favorite topics. And I've had over 400 book interviews. Uh, I've done, I do it every Friday, publish a an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book. And I've really only had two very specifically about sales and marketing alignment. It's one of my favorite topics. So when you contacted me and told me about the book, I was very excited. And as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I was just talking about your book last week, Davis. But you know what? Before I talk about myself, I think we need to talk a little bit about Jeff Davis. Okay. Uh, um, okay. <laughs> do you know what the first and last person on the moon? And Jeff Davis have in common. Wait, is that a question for me to answer? Yes. I know you're the host, but I'm going to ask a, you a question. So not prepared for this. The, well, the obvious answer would be that they worked at NASA. Oh, you worked at NASA. I interned at NASA. That's that's right. I forgot about that. Oh, I, I need to bone up on my Jeff Davis <laughs> trivia. The so, first person on the moon, the last person on the moon and Jeff Davis all have engineering degrees from Purdue. Oh, okay. Did you know that? Neil Armstrong, first man. The last man was Gene Cernan. And then Jeff Davis hasn't been to the moon yet, but seems like you would be a candidate for that because you have an engineering degree from Purdue. Well, and it's interesting. I'll add to a little bit of trivia and then we'll stop talking. <laughs> Neil actually is a Purdue alum. 
uh, and has a building dedicated to him on campus. So there's definitely another tie there um, just to add to the mix. Yeah. So we're all engineers as they, as they say in the streets. Yeah. So anyway, I recently interviewed uh, David Merriman Scott about his book from a few years back called Marketing the Moon. And it was about the probably the greatest PR effort ever done, which was the Apollo program. And I published that interview at the 50th anniversary of the final Apollo mission, Apollo 17. And that's where I learned that Gene Cernan, who wrote the foreword to his book. All right, I'll stop talking about Jeff Davis. I don't know why it made me a little uncomfortable. I was like, wait, I'm supposed to be the host, not you. But see, this is what happens. <laughs> but I hope your audience you interview- appreciates this. I think that they will. But this is what's funny. This is what happens when you interview another podcast host, that it becomes an interview about you. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. Well, and I was only doing that because I'm supremely uncomfortable talking about myself. But I'll talk about it briefly. So let's go back. After college, I was in the Army for three years overseas, where I was in the field artillery, came back, got an MBA, and then went off to work at these big ad agencies in New York City. It was just like the show Mad Men, except uh, not as much sex, drinking, and smoking. It wasn't quite like that, but the advertising part was very, very accurate. And then about uh, 20 years ago or so, I started my own advertising firm. And then that was chugging along, but the whole advertising industrial complex really started to change the good old days were ending because we no longer had a captive audience. And so along the way, I was starting to figure out, well, what, what am I going to do? This gravy train is kind of coming to a stop. And I went back to reading a lot of books and I discovered the first, uh, one of the early editions of The New Rules of Marketing and PR by David Merriman Scott, which sort of showed me how, where the whole world was going. And I said, ah, oh, that's it. I've got a second bite at the career Apple. That's what I'm going to do. Pivoted the business more to B2B, creating content, all those kinds of things. And that time was listening to a lot of marketing podcasts. And I really enjoyed podcasts where they interviewed authors. And I just thought, despite the fact that I was in the artillery, ready, fire, aim has never been a problem for me. So I said, I'm going to start a podcast. And so I looked up and saw that marketingbookpodcast.com was available. And I said, well, that's a sign from on high or somewhere. And so I had already met a number of the first guests. And I just said, I'm setting this up. What do you think? And they said, yeah. Uh, and David Merriman Scott actually was the very first guest on the show. And then got to about the 11th episode. And that's when I realized I'm actually going to have to read each one of these books. <laughs> I didn't really think that one through, Jeff. So if anyone's thinking about doing a podcast like that. So that's why you know you mentioned that I interview a lot of authors now, and they'll say, you're the only podcast host that's actually read my book. And that's not to take away from the other podcast. That's what I'm set up to do. That's what I love doing. <laughs> and I'm just in admiration of people like you who who write these books. And now the podcast is really, so I'm doing it for very personal reasons, but it's kind of taken off and it's it's really done well. But then in terms of my business, I did in 2022 was after a lot of thought and maybe prayer. <laughs> I said, you know what? We're, I'm going to change the business now. I'm not going to keep providing done-for-use marketing services for these companies because it just wasn't working as well. And I'll give you a, a good example. This year, I became certified in They Ask You Answer, which is a great book by Marcus Sheridan, and uh, just got certified as a duct tape marketing consultant so that I can provide strategy to these companies and then show them how they can insource almost all of their marketing 
activity that they would have traditionally been having an agency do. And I know that's controversial, but there was something that happened a few years ago where this company produced all this content. We built website and, and did all this really smart marketing content, very much aligned with their sales process and the way the buyer buys and, you know, a bottom of the funnel, top of the funnel, all that sort of thing. And it really, really did well. And then they said, oh, we want you to stop now. And I said, well, wait a minute. Are you not even going to do any email marketing? We got you all set up on this platform. And they said, nope. And then they started complaining that they weren't getting any sales. And so, you know, I go into the CRM and I say, well, what about all these leads we generated? These are from companies you want to talk to. And they say, oh yeah, we didn't call them. And I kind of snapped and I said, that's it. That's it. <laughs> I'm, you know, if, I'm done. Yeah. And I think that I'm, 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 I'm a slow learner, Jeff, but I think that I think there are more companies who have a sales problem than a marketing problem. Meaning I've met a lot of companies over the years who say, yeah, our marketing sucks. We need help with our marketing. And I think they should start with their sales process, figure out who their buyer, do the strategy first, because they're thinking that marketing whatever that means, it, it means different things to different people, think that somehow uh, money's going to start getting wired into their bank account. Like the, some sort of magic is going to happen when they do marketing. And it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> your marketing is actually going to be better if you can align it with the way you sell, uh, particularly if you can sell the way your buyers want to buy. So that's why a book like yours was of such great interest to me. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. And I love the fact you gave some people context. I do want to do a, a double click on kind of what you talked about, this idea of like kind of like in-housing content creation, that sort of thing, because I think it's becoming more and more important for B2B organizations. And I like the fact that you as a, as a company kind of shifted your approach. Gary Vee, you know, and for those that are familiar with him, you know, talk about this idea of, you know, in-housing, creating, you know, the companies of the future will basically be media, like many media companies which is obviously related to in-housing. We now have a cookie-less world. You know, first-party data is more and more important. And so I think this is something that a lot of organizations just have to come to terms with. We're at a point now where it is advantageous to bring stuff in-house and be able to hire the headcount to be able to do it with the expertise. The other thing, uh, before we jump in that, that you made me think of also too that I meant to mention first is that a lot of companies I've worked with, to your point about a sale having a sales problem, they're very process driven and not strategy driven. So they focus on, you know, we're spin selling, we're doing this sort of selling, we're going to process. I'm like, great, your process is awesome, but it's not aligned to the buyer's journey. The strategy is not there. Like you're asking things, simple things like what's your ICP and, you know, what are the products that are, you know, producing the most ROI? And, and again, there are some organizations that do this. I'm not saying all, but there are too many that I've seen when you ask those very basic strategic questions, either they don't have an answer or the answer is not consistent across the functions, which, you know, that's the space that I live in. It's just like, I'll talk to the head of marketing, head of sales, head of customer success, and all three of you have different stories and you don't even realize your stories are, are different. So I think to your point, we've got to get out of process and really step back and say, what is our overall strategy? And is it relevant to the modern buyer? Mm -hmm. So true. It's so true. Anyway, there's, there's so much that we could talk about, but you know, one of the things that I guess you could say maybe the tip of the spear of this issue is that content, creating some kind of content for your customers, for your sales team, 
is very important. And so many companies are frustrated when they hire an agency. And again, hiring an agency, it's like saying, I want to go buy an appliance. What what specifically is it you you want? I don't know. I just want to buy an appliance. That's kind of what it sounds like when a lot of companies say, well, we hired an agency. They, they're maybe hiring the wrong people and not to take anything away from my, you know, my, all my agency friends, the whole agency world, but they're being hired. Some of them are being hired for the wrong thing, but companies should be creating more of their own content. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a book called They Ask You Answer, which is very much about just answer your customers' questions, particularly questions, not just about your product, maybe secondarily, but answer questions about what are your customers' uh, fears? What are they uh, suspicious of? What is it that's keeping them from even wanting to go on your website and contact you or call you? Talk about all that sort of thing. And there is a wealth of information within companies. You know, all the customer success people, the salespeople, they interact with the customers quite a bit and almost 100% more than the agencies do. You know, why are you having them create it? And also a technical audience, let's say. Let's say you're selling to technical people like engineers, maybe, or scientists. If they, like anyone, are very good at sniffing out BS, and if that content isn't pretty closely supervised by that technical person, their prospect is going to say, this is, this is nonsense. This is, this is BS. Now, you, <laughs> humans are really good at sniffing that out. But I think also companies like Marcus talks about in his book, if there's more of a culture of answering your customers' questions, it's really, the results are dramatic. So I think there's also a hesitation. A lot of companies say, well, I don't know how to do that. Well, you know, a lot of companies can hire just two people to start taking care of a lot of this, you know, a content person and a videographer. But so you don't need a cast of thousands and you have much more control. And uh, I don't know, you're able to build a relationship with these prospective customers and you can get away from a lot of this sort of uh, anodyne content, you know, this, this B2B jargon, all that sort of thing. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling. So I was going to ask you, do you think, do you see, do you feel that a lot of marketing leaders are trepidatious to put content out there that answers questions because they feel like they are creating a market for their competitors or creating more opportunities for their competitors? Yes, but it's not just the marketers. A lot of companies will do that. A lot of companies could be talking about is price, pricing, not necessarily what your exact prices are because most companies will say it depends. But companies can talk about what tends to drive prices up, what tends to drive prices down. And in doing so, you're able to establish value and you're able to help the customer understand why price could matter. You could also include a range. But The thing that's interesting is that people will say, well, why don't you, we can't put price on our uh, website. Do you know why most companies don't want to put price on their website? Can you take a guess? I'm assuming because then people will compare it to other people's prices or they'll know where they fall as far as pricing. Yes. they can't change it. Yeah. And one additional one is they'll say, well, our, our competition. Then I'll ask a company, well, do you salespeople, do you know what, prices your competitors charge. And they'll say, oh yeah, absolutely. We are really dialed into that. And I'll say, well, do you think they're not dialed into you? They already know that. In fact, one workshop I was doing where I said, I started to ask that and the CEO slammed his hand on the 
conference table and said, they already know. <laughs> so instead, what we did is we created this content about why things are priced the way they are. If most of your content is about explaining why prices go up and down in your category, right off the bat, you're differentiated and you're helping people and you're establishing a lot, of, you're building a lot of trust. And, and so, here's the other thing I see that I see. It seems today. counterintuitive, but it's really dramatic, the results it is. that you can get. Well, and the other thing related to that that I see is that we have this perception, again, we won't say all people, but there's a general perception that if I'm not talking about my product or brand, that the content is not valuable. And what I talk to people about is like, if you're educating the market, you're, whether you're having a webinar about, you know, a general topic of like, you know, how do you buy steel and manufacture? I don't know. I'm just making up stuff, right? That is not product specific. Buyers are intelligent enough that if you're the host of that said web webinar, or you've produced that white paper, they know who you are. You're clearly saying, you know, powered by, created by company XYZ. And the more they see that, they're going to associate with associate you with educating them. And to your point, Douglas, what you said before about being transparent, answering their questions, which builds trust and affinity for the organization, the brand, and then they will buy product. It's not like if you create a webinar and you don't talk about your specific product that they're like, oh, that was great. I have no idea who that company was, but I'm glad that they put this, this webinar on to educate me about XYZ. I just don't. That I'm not fundamentally seeing that, but I think there's this hesitation to kind of do kind of unbranded or non-product specific content out in the marketplace, again, thinking that you're not getting credit for it per se. Yeah. And I can understand that over the last, you know, hundred years, you were paying, you were advertising, you were sending that message out there and you were, you were going to talk about yourself, but those days are over. I mean, look at me, I'm a recovering ad guy. Uh <laughs> You heard it, it here first. If it still worked really, really well, uh, now there's You'd always be doing a, it. Yeah, there's a time and place for advertising. Still, it's just not the cure all for everything that everyone thought it was. the The truth is that your customers don't really care until you show you care about them. And talking about your product is very self centered. You will talk about it, but don't start with that. Start out by demonstrating that you understand their problems. They're not buying your product. They're buying a solution to a problem. I know that's easy to say, but it's really hard for companies to manifest. If you are able to demonstrate that you understand their problems, they feel that you get them, that you understand them emotionally, and that you understand them, what their personal goals are, even though they may not say it, only then are they going to look for the business outcome they're looking for. And then they're interested in hearing about your product. But they're not going to listen to your product until you show that you understand them and their their issues and what they want to achieve. So that's where all this content can come in helpful. Yes, you'll always have a section on your website about your products, okay? And it's not going to get as much traffic as content that teaches your customers how to make a smart decision about your category. And I think the word decision is important. So I talk about this section in the book. A, a lot of companies are stuck in inertia because they don't understand the fundamental business problem or business challenge that they have. And so, and you kind of alluded to this, is that when you're able to talk to them about the symptoms, because many times they're symptoms, they're not problems, they're actually symptoms of the problem, but they're only able to see the symptom and say like, oh, we need to treat that. But if your content or your salespeople or your marketing is able to say, are these things happening in your business, which many times I believe are symptoms, these are the potential causes, and this is the, the potential business 
the real business issue that you're dealing with. Let's help you kind of ascertain which one it really is for you and then really help you make a smart decision about what's best for your business. Because many times what you'll find is that you are not treating the core underlying issue. So you're not fixing it. And so I think that's why there's inertia of like, oh, no, that's not really it. But I, I found that those companies that say like, you know, are, is your revenue going down? Is you Are you having really terrible, you know, renewal rates or whatever? Those are symptoms. And they could be because, you know, X, Y, Z. That's what I've seen. Companies that really are doing it right get that they almost come in as consultants on the front end of the buyer's journey to help companies get clarity on what is the business challenge. And if you're able to give me clarity, then more than likely, I'm going to follow you as a guy because you've you provided value in the way of giving me clarity and like, what are we really dealing with? Well said. That should be the clip you should use to promote this interview. Don't Nothing I said. But I mean, you go to the doctor, they don't start writing a prescription. <laughs> they get some information, blood pressure, temperature, all so forth and so on. And only then do they say, well, it, this is what's presenting itself. Now we need to do some more tests to find out what the problem might be so we can help you. That's very, yeah, very, very true. Very true. I think it could be a structural issue. And that starts to point at the thing I was talking about where, you know, a lot of companies think we need a big portion of marketing with a little bit of sales on the side. No, you need a big portion of sales with a little bit of marketing on the side, you know, cart before the horse here. and or horse before the cart. And I suspect that there are a lot of companies that are thinking, well, we can throw a bunch of money at a marketing firm and have them do some, you know, kind of cool stuff, whatever that means. But we're not really going to have to change anything structurally. You know, we don't really have to be that interested and have any really skin in the game other than writing a check. But if you got a sales problem, it's probably internal in some, to, to some degree. And that involves making internal changes or maybe hiring and firing. And companies aren't, they, they don't want to do that. They're, they're less inclined to want to do that. So I think that's part of the problem as well. So I don't know, maybe I'm pushing a rock up a hill here, but that's why I'm so keen on starting with the strategy and the sales and the buyer <laughs> before we get to the other stuff. Yeah. So you've been doing the podcast for eight years. Congrats, by the way. What are no, some- Nothing of else to do. <laughs> I don't believe that to be true, but okay, we'll go with, we'll go with that. What were some what have been some of your biggest aha moments uh, over the years? And we don't have to do like a deep deep dive into it, but I, uh, one of the reasons that I really wanted to have you on this podcast was the amount of information that you consume on a regular basis. First of all, it's absolutely insane to me. And so we were talking about before we hit the record button that one of the the things I I just am in awe of of you is the, the fact that you're, you're first of all, you're a voracious reader because there's no way you're able to read these, the number of books that you do and produce the number of podcasts you do without just like reading 24 seven. But I, I really wanted you to be able to come in to share your wisdom because eight years of reading basically a new book every week, like that's a lot, that's a lot of insights. So what are some of, some, some of the aha moments you were like, oh, wow, that really has changed my perspective on B2B marketing or, or sales or just B2B in general? Well, and they're really good books. One of the cool things about the podcast is that I get to pick the books that interest me. <laughs> so Those it's not like facts. these are being assigned not everybody, to me. Not every book makes the list. <laughs> well, it, it doesn't mean they're bad books. They just might not appeal to me. So that's why it's such a nice problem to have. And there's like one of the few things I don't like about this is having to say no to an author. Because like I said, I have such admiration. But one thing that comes to mind is the quote from Aristotle 
the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. <laughs> so there was an author on the show who's been on about five times a while back, and he's always teasing me about doing the podcast. And but yet he comes back to <laughs> promote his books. So he's a friend, and uh, he said, "You know, are you learning anything?" And I finally said, "Bob, we'll call him Bob because that's his name." I said, Bob, I'm not reading the same book 400 times, okay? <laughs> it's a different book. And every single book that's on the podcast, I end up metaphorically slapping my head saying, Douglas, how did you not know this? Had you not- Just today, I was reading a, a chapter of a book for, a, for this week's interview, and there was a, a term I'd never heard of. And I'm just like, now I, I keep reading because I, I learned just how much I, I don't know. So that's part of it is, you know, the, I guess the humility that comes from all this learning, but also um, a couple of the things that come to mind, I guess, well, we've talked about, you know, I think companies are ignoring sales and they're maybe paying too much attention to how they want to do their marketing when actually they should, they should equalize that or they should balance that chemical equation. The other thing that keeps coming up over and over that I've gleaned, and this is really more specifically for marketers, but I guess it applies to anybody but the more, in terms of being a successful marketer, the, the most successful marketers are very dialed into what the company goals are, particularly if they're not told what the goals are. So in other words, they go and find out or help to help the company to formulate or articulate what those goals are. And there are way too many marketers that just that seem to be working in, in you know, their silo without paying attention to why they're doing it. And they don't, a lot of them don't want to be measured or they're uncomfortable or they're fearful of that, or companies don't know how to measure the ROI of their marketing. But the most successful marketers are very much dialed into what the company goals are, particularly financial. They speak the language of accounting. And the other area that keeps coming through for companies and for marketers is that the companies that have the deepest insights into their customers always seem to win. And as easy as it is to say that, it's really hard for companies to understand their customers. For example, like they'll say, well, this is what the sales guys are telling us. Yeah, well, the sales guys, they're busy and they're trying to accomplish a very specific thing. But how much do you know about your customers? Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon, I've read this in several books and articles where when he was having a meeting at a conference room, he always wanted an empty chair there. And that empty chair, because every other chair was full, because they were meeting with the boss, that chair represented the customer. And invariably, he would point at the empty chair during the meeting and say, you're forgetting about something. (laughs) And then as people would prepare for a meeting with him, they'd say, oh, you know what? He's going to point at that chair. Oh, the customer. I forgot about that. She doesn't like that. Oh, yeah. So even the biggest companies struggle to get deep insights into their customers, but really successful marketers self-appoint as the customer expert. So in other words, they take the initiative to go and find out what's on the customer's mind. And that doesn't mean saying, what do you want? Just observe them. There've been a number of great books about how you can just go and observe people and understand how your product is used in the context. Go visit them. Marketers should spend a day, a month with their salespeople you know, and, and go on a sales call. And there are some companies where if you want to work in marketing, you have to be a salesperson for a quarter. The, the focusing on understanding your customers just seems to be a real blind spot for most companies. And we've gone off and done buyer persona interviews for clients in 
days past where we would follow the advice of a book, Adele Ravella's Buyer Personas book. And there's like five insights you need to get in a 20 or 30 minute interview with a, with a customer. And we would tell the client, this is what we're going to go do. And they would say, yeah, that's great. Well, we would come back and present, these are the issues. And the client would say one of two things, if not both. One was, wow, you really understand our customers. <laughs> we told you what we were going to do. Okay, thank you. The other one is, wow, I forgot how much goes on in our customer's world before they come to us. <laughs> those are the two things that always seem to come through. And invariably, those interviews had very little to do with the client's product or service. It was all about what was going on in their world, what their concerns, their fears, their issues are, like I talked about earlier. So the, the other thing that keeps coming out, and marketers or anybody really who has this interest in continuous learning are always more successful. And there was even a, uh, I think it was a corn fairy or it was another study I read about where they analyzed like a, a disproportionately high number of CEOs have this autodidact, this, this self-teaching gene where they're always trying to learn. And the most successful marketers are doing that too. And HubSpot, well, I, I saw this talk uh, once by one of the co-founders and they were at this interview and they were asking him, what do you look for in an employee? Because they've been a, they're publicly traded. They're a multi-billion dollar company. They started in 2006, I think. And they've been really successful. And he said, Brian Halligan said, well, I look for what I call a learn it all. And don't confuse that with a know-it-all, but a learn-it-all is somebody who knows how to teach themselves something new, what needs to be done, and then goes and figures out how to apply that to the company or to the customer. That's the number one thing they're looking for is people who are continuously learning and teaching themselves. So there are a number of uh, authors of sales books uh, who, are, who talk about this, you know, the salespeople who are constantly learning, constantly uh, trying new things, understanding all they can about the, the customer. So company goals, understanding your customers, understanding your customers, not just looking at a net promoter score, <laughs> go and have an actual conversation and continuous learning. There was a book on the show a couple of years ago called Roadmap to Revenue, which is right up your alley, Kristen Javago. And she's been really successful in her career at, uh, particularly with the, I think it was tech firms, really good book. And the whole, you know, what the linchpin of the whole approach, successful approach she has is to interview your customers. <laughs> and she shows you exactly what to talk about. And she shows you, don't waste time doing this. This is what you want to find out from your customer. Those are a couple of things that, that keep coming up. I think there's an expression, maybe it was Mark Twain who said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. <laughs> yeah. And so there, these are some things that just keep coming up over and over again as sort of the things that are uh, have the most impact, but are the most difficult for companies to do. You know, one of the things that you made me think of as I transitioned from sales to marketing earlier in my career was initially as a marketer. So, you know, I got out of MBA school and MBA program, I don't know what it's called, MBA school. Uh, I was really focused on, I don't think as any junior marketer is, is what I'm doing successful? Did the campaign work? Did we hit the KPIs? Did the metrics go up? And I'm not saying those things aren't important, but you said something about really learning about your customer and kind of being the learn it all. I think when I, as I matured in my marketing acumen, 
I started to look at things about not only like, do we hit our goal, but what did we learn through that campaign, uh, if, whether it was successful or not? Because what I found is that those insights kind of fed the, the strategy or fed the machine, so to say, because those sometimes were more important than us hitting the KPI. Because a lot of times, being honest, like a lot of these KPIs that we create sometimes are random. We kind of pull them out based on whatever, right? Especially if you're launching products, which, you know, I, I've had a number of uh, product launches. But I started to a see- A lot like, of KPIs are simply things that are easy to measure, which is not a good thing. Which is not always indicative of whether or not it's really you're really <laughs> right. moving the needle, to be honest with you, and yeah. really customers really care. But what I found is that, to your point, those insights that came out of those, and to be honest with you, some of the, some of the best insights we got were when things didn't work. But you just have to have the right mindset and you have to be in the right, you know, right state of mind to be like, okay, that didn't work. It's not a failure. What did we learn about this? And if you do the, the, the work to really like chip in and then ask questions like, hey, we ran this campaign, XYZ didn't work, you know, you, know, you customer, why did this not resonate with you? And they'll, they're going to give you insights that are more important than asking them, what do you want? A lot of times finding out what you don't want, what they don't want is eye-opening because you we make assumptions about our customers that, you know, many times are not true. So when you said that, I was just like, yeah, this is 100% for me, at least in my career, and I can't speak for other people, was a mindset shift for me of, and now I do it for everything. Of like anytime we're doing campaigns or we're, I'm, I'm building strategy, I'm like, not only do I have KPIs, but I'm like, what can I learn from this particular tactic? Or what can I learn from this particular campaign or whatnot? So, you know, if you think about it, you might be learning things that you would in the past have paid a fortune to a research company to find out. And there was a yet another book. I, I keep talking about these books, but uh, That's why there was a book, a great book called by uh, Nicholas Webb, great author. He wrote this uh, the most recent book I, he was on the show for was a book called What Customers Hate. <laughs> he, wrote, he wrote another book called What Customers Crave. He talked about how, kind of like what you were talking about, where instead of you know trying to create a great customer experience and make them love you like people love Disney, you know, this sort of trope that's in a lot of some of these books, he says, no, no, you want that, but you start with what your customers hate first. And so sort of like stop the bleeding, okay? It has the greatest impact. First start with what they hate. And maybe that's not something they hate about your company, but it's something they hate about your category. Then you can work your way towards having this uh, nirvana of customer experience. But it was very interesting. But back to Jeff Davis, okay? I just can't resist talking about Jeff Davis. Part of the reasons I- I did not pay for this, by the way, just to be very clear to those listening. (laughs) Yes. Part of the, I would suspect- I guess you're probably thinking, I think about Jeff Davis all the time, but when you said, what are we trying to accomplish? What are we looking for? And then what did we learn? Part of that is that engineering training that you had. And I have had a number of authors on the show. It's noticeable to me anyway, who had engineering backgrounds, who went into sales or marketing. They understand systems and they've been very, very successful. And so that same training that they had in engineering or science works really well in in sales and marketing. And that's why the joke is, you know, marketing has gone from madmen to math men. They understand systems, they understand improvements, you know, like Deming, continuous uh, improvement. Yeah, optimization, all that sort of thing. So it's more obvious to me probably than it is to you because that's just how you think anyway. 
why he became successful, but it's that, that attitude, that approach. No, it makes sense. And thank you. I appreciate that. I will give us a short plug for those companies that are looking for marketing and sales leaders that engineers don't discount engineers as those folks, because I think there's still this perception like engineers have no people skills. And I'm not saying that's not true. I went to school with plenty of people that I would never put in front of a customer. But for those that are personable, that are able to connect with people, I, th- I do think that that process-driven mindset allows you to really be able to optimize your approach. Because to your point, I didn't even know I was doing this you know, early in my, my sales career. Because it was already baked in. It was baked in, right? Like I just, I went through school and so I didn't know any better, but, and I had district managers and managers kind of uh, give me this feedback, not exactly the way that we're talking, but I would go through things that didn't work and I would be like, okay, why did that work? Okay, great. I got to do this. And then I would change it like the next time. Whereas some of my other colleagues, they'd be, they keep doing the same thing like quarter over quarter and it would take them longer to pivot because they're like, but this is the way we were supposed to do it. I'm like, but that's not working. So... I'm going to do something different while you're doing the same thing. And then we'll see who finishes first. Yeah. So uh, I didn't know that, but because there were times where, you know, and I, you know, I'm probably telling myself where the company would say, you know, X, Y, Z, we're going to do it this way. And I would try it and I'd be like, nope, I don't agree for my territory. And then I would just start doing what I wanted to do. Now, obviously, when you're with your manager, you, you know, you play the game, that sort of thing. But what I found more often than not, the right permutation for my territory was slightly different than what came from corporate. Right. And it wasn't that what came from corporate was wrong. It was that I had to tailor it to the people I was dealing with. Yeah. And it just needed to, some, some of it needed to be modified. So, but yeah, I think that goes back to the optimization. Given your, your sales background as well, this is uh, what you've described is what did we learn? I'm worried you could tell me, you'd know better than me, but a lot of times when a sale doesn't go through or when a sale does go through, when they close a sale, there's not a lot of thought given to, well, why did they buy from us? What, what, there's not a lot of after action reporting. And sometimes you can improve your sales quite a bit by analyzing the ones you did win. <laughs> I've been thinking about it. They didn't buy because of your good looks and persuasive manner of speech. I'm speaking to your audience, not to you, Jeff. But there are other reasons. In fact, one of those five it's Adele Ravello's five rings of insight. If you Google five rings of insight, one of those five is what was their decision criteria? What was their real decision criteria? And there's always a, a delta between why you think they're buying and why they really are buying. It, it just blows these companies away. Like they're not buying from us because our our product is so well engineered. In fact, it's over-engineered. No. <laughs> Yeah, that's not really why. There's other reasons. It, is, it, it always uh, surprises them, but it, it helps them a lot when they realize what's the real emotional reason why people are buying. And I can't remember who it was. Uh, maybe it was Antonio Damasio who said, we are not thinking creatures that have emotions. We're emotional creatures that occasionally think. Yes, 200%. The other thing you made me think of is, you know, and I talk about this a lot, especially when you're constructing buyer's journeys, is that for all of us, our biggest blind spot is into the internal buying process that you're not a part of. And so if you are not analyzing these deals, both close one and close loss, and really talking through and having conversations and like, how do we think things went internally? Because that, to be honest with you, all the other stuff we can somewhat measure and it's probably similar and 
but it's it's a conversation of that advocate talking to somebody on the buying team and then having a conversation and having a meeting and bringing in the email that you sent them to have a conversation. It's that part that you're not a part of that really when you're able to get clarity on that, from my perspective, is the game changer because then you can start to see like, oh, okay, we know that we need to give such and such this and this is what it needs to say so they can tell to such and such. Let me proactively give it to them or let me probe and make sure that they know the talk track that they need to say what they need to say internally to get support. Like it's those things that I feel like, again, from my perspective, are the game changers. Yeah. You know, there was a a book on the show this year that I think you would really like called The Jolt Effect by Matt Matt Dixon, who was one of the co-authors of Challenger Sale, Challenger Customer. And what's interesting is, you know, you talked about the reason I thought of this, because you said close one, close lost. Basically, he's saying what you should do is have three. You should have closed one, closed lost, or no decision. And in the book, just like in so many of the books they did with CEB, they they analyzed like two and a half million sales calls that were done during the pandemic when everybody had to, you know, had to do it on the computer and they were recorded. And then they put them all into text and then they used machine learning to analyze what the most successful ones were doing, what the least successful ones were doing. Really interesting. Right up your engineering alley. And then they realized that even though a customer realized they needed to make a change, right? Okay, so whatever you're selling, you're selling change. And that's frightening for humans and for good reason. And But even companies or buyers who realize we've got to make a change and we're committed to doing that, they were getting hung up on the fear of making a decision much more than a lot of us realized. 87% of the buyers had a fear of just simply making a decision, even though they knew their company might go out of business if they didn't make the decision. They were more afraid of a decision. So in the book, they write about how to address this, meaning don't keep saying winter is coming. You know, the wolf is at the door. They know they need to make the change. Instead, you need to go into a second gear and show J-O-L-T as an acronym for the four things you need to do in order to help customers get past this crippling fear of making a decision. And so that's why he was saying that CRMs, you know, they'll say one or lost. It's like, no, you need a third one because most of them are going to be no decision. That's actually really true. I'll have to read the book. I think you'd like it. But that's really, really interesting because I do agree with you. Majority of the deals are, are being lost, so to say, to no decision. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of people may be thinking, oh, it's, they were just comfortable with the status quo. Actually, no, <laughs> they're not. But they were, the the fear, like paper covers rock, the fear of making a decision was greater than the fear of not making a change. So I read a little bit about, you know, your, your I love this fact, you call it the 12-step program, which on your website. <laughs> right. Well, it's for marketing agency addiction. Oh, oh, I got all of it. I was like, this is genius. <laughs> so I want to do a little bit deeper dive into three of the, the points you talk about as you guys kind of talk through like the deliverables and outcomes of, of organizations working with you, just to give a little bit more context of like how you approach this. So the first one is you talk about leadership, the outcome being the leadership team actually sees digital marketing and sales enablement as a priority. Can you share with those that are listening, like why is, first of all, why is that important? And then second of all, what are some things high level that you would 
you know, talk to the organization about to get leadership to, to change their perspective? Because I do agree with you, digital marketing sales enablement are very, very important. But how would you go about uh, helping organizations to realize that? Well, if there's no buy-in at the top level, it's just not going to happen. Don't waste your time talking to me or waste your money on things that are sort of on the periphery. And it reminds me of this book that was on the show called Create Togetherness by Jeff Davis. And I've got Jeff Davis on the brain more than usual, but I remember in that interview that you said, if the CEO is not on board, you're not going to engage with them for the simple reason that they're not going to be successful. I don't know if you remember talking about that, but it's a big cornerstone of your book. And it was so true because let's say they did hire Jeff Davis and they weren't bought in and they're sitting there with their arms crossed metaphorically or physically. <laughs> they're thinking, all right, Mr. S- Sales and Marketing Alignment, you know, what are you, you going to do for me? They're not going to be successful. It's just not going to work because the employees are going to say, oh, this is the flavor of the month. This, you know, this Jeff Davis guy is a nice guy, but the boss is never going to make the changes needed to really make this happen and make us grow faster and be more profitable. You know, if there's no leadership. Now, how do I do it? Well, a lot of folks do it this way is I start with a workshop. And that's where I don't tell them what they need to know. I do my very best to help them discover on their own by asking a lot of questions. Kind of like we were talking about earlier where I said, you know, what would, does your competition know about your pricing? Oh yeah. See, that was an example of some of the the questions that I'll, I'll ask. And so we do a workshop and then by the end of the workshop, which is maybe a half day or so, but it needs to have the marketing people, they're already on board, but you need to have the salespeople there and you need to have customer facing people there and the leadership needs to be there. And they can then decide. And and by the end of it, a lot of the leadership are saying, why have we not been doing this? You know, I I completely understand why we we should be answering our customers' questions, most important questions, and stop talking about ourselves so much. And I I know it works. It works really, really well on several levels. Uh, It shortens the sales cycle. It gets sales and marketing aligned. (laughs) It gets a lot of internet traffic. It's, It's good for organic search. But that's what I do because I don't expect them to understand it. But I remember the first time I read, you know, there've been so many books that have been such game changers. But the first time I read some of Marcus Sheridan stuff about 10 years ago, I said, this just makes too much sense. And it just became so clear to me. Like when I read David Meerman Scott's book, New Rules of Marketing PR, it's like, this is airtight. This absolutely makes sense. So that's how you do it. Because I, I can't expect anyone to understand that. So then I do a workshop and then they can decide if they want to go in that direction. Maybe they're fat and happy and they just want to keep talking about themselves. That's fine. It's not going to last forever. And then I can see if they're going to be successful. That's kind of, I guess I should call it the Jeff Davis test, where I can see if they're going to be able to do this or not. You know. Like it's like a personal trainer saying, "Well, you you're going to need to show up to your sessions." And if you're not going to show up, I'm not working with you. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I can help to get the leadership and the sales. I mean, it's really so much fun to do a workshop and see the salespeople get excited about this. And it's like there's a light bulb that slowly starts to go off above every one of them. Like we'll say, "What are the questions you answer four times a day?" Oh. I answer this one four times a day or, or whatever. They'll say, uh, I'll say, well, is that, is that question on your website? Is it, are you presenting that? And they'll say, no, everybody knows that. I'll say, if everybody knows it, why are they asking you? <laughs> they start to catch on. They go, oh, oh yeah. And 
<laughs> so it's it's not something that happens right away. They need to understand how this can help them. And the other thing that's kind of funny is that, you know, I can in days past I'd be giving a talk and I would be explaining how you know, the reason all this sales and marketing stuff has changed is because of the way people get information to make a decision has changed, right? Okay, so my dad, when he wanted to buy a car, he had to go to the dealership. You know, the last place my wife went when she wanted to buy a new car a couple of years ago, well, it was to her husband, but the last place she went to was the dealership. Okay, so that's a perfect example. Of the way That's why all this has changed because people can get their information in different ways. Oh yeah, I'm the same way. I'm, I do all my research online, and I have uh, listened to a streaming service, and I watch uh, Netflix. I don't see many commercials. I got more information about that car than the poor guy trying to sell it. And I'll say that's right. And do you think your customers aren't doing the same thing? <laughs> they usually say, "Oh, I guess they are." And then usually some salespeople go, "Yeah, boss, we've been telling you this." <laughs> But you haven't been listening to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I got to bring some, you know, podcast boy in to, to talk to you. But <laughs> anyway, that's how you can get, you know, the leadership on on board. They have to understand and sort of become aware. They have to discover what they could be doing. Because so that answer, hopefully that answers your question about it totally leadership. Does. You have to have it. And if you don't, it's not going to work. But they're no different from us. We need to learn and, and understand and think through you know, this this new reality. Yeah, no, I, it makes a whole lot of sense. And I, I like the fact that you talk about that. You have to help somebody discover the answer versus just trying to hit them over the head with, you have to do this, you have to do this. This is the you know end of the cliff because stereotypically to, to your point, it just doesn't work. The other thing I'll add to that, you know, the whole part of the book where I talk about the CEO is not on board. That was not just a kind of a research or like that is me in the world realizing that I was taking the wrong approach because I, in the very, very beginning of my work, really was convinced that a uh, grassroots approach of getting the sales and marketing leader in the same room and like really talking to them. And, and I struggled, right? But, you know, do, do I start with the sales leader that convinces the marketing leader? Do I start with the marketing leader that convinces the sales leader and kind of, you know, did some iterations of that and realized I have to talk to them at the same time, but in a different way. And then ultimately figured out that even when I got those on board and everybody was like, yes, we should move forward with this. And I actually had a consulting gig that I, you know, I learned from where everybody was on board, but CEO wasn't. And ultimately was like, nope, I don't and think it's happened? a priority. <laughs> I don't think it's a priority. We're not doing it. And so in that moment, going all the way back to earlier part of our conversation, what did I learn from that outcome? Yes. There was an insight that oh. you need to get the CEO on board. And so that is why there's a whole section in the book that says if the CEO is not on board, things are not moving forward. And ultimately, is their responsibility for the, the dysfunction or alignment of sales and marketing in the organization. So, yes, it's a life and lesson. note to self, like, oh, why, why is that not working? I think there are certain things you can do with the, the person in charge, the check writer, to help them understand what needs to be done. But without it, it's not going to work. You got to move on. Yep. So we'll talk about one more step in your 12-step program. You talk about the sales team, and this kind of dovetails on what we just talked about, but they're bought into your marketing strategy. So that head of marketing that's listening to the podcast, what are some of your thoughts or what are some of your ways that you can help them think differently about getting sales on board with the overall marketing strategy? Because I stereotypically, and this is just Jeff Davis, but I want to hear what you say, I uh, think there is a really huge opportunity to do better at selling the value of marketing to sales leaders. I think a lot of times we don't do enough of that and or we're just not providing value. But I wanted to 
to get your thoughts. Yeah. And I, I'm sure you've seen this. I can remember going to a big sales kickoff event for you know billion dollar company and room full of salespeople and, and their distributors and all that sort of thing. And then they had a breakout where the marketing person started presenting what they were going to be doing for the next year. And the salespeople had this look on their face like, how does this help me at all? Oh my God, so what are you doing? This. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like the marketing person was just describing all this activity and tools they were going to be using. And all the salespeople were, I, I have to wonder, they were thinking like, well, that's great. Nice to know we have a marketing person that I see once a year. I don't understand how this has anything to do with helping me. And that always, uh, <laughs> there was this one particular one where I just thought, you know, it's like they were at a zoo watching some unusual animal, you know, in their natural habitat, talking about marketing activity and kind of meaningless metrics. So I think that, again, back to the, the workshop or using questions, there's so many things where you can ask salespeople, what would make things easier for you? If you ask them questions like, what, how long is your sales cycle? what are the problems you are facing? What is it that's keeping you from closing deals faster? And then you can start to, well, I'll give you an example. A lot of the salespeople don't use the marketing content. They can't find it. They're not aware of it. They, they just don't get it. But if, like we do in the workshops, we'll say, um, what are uh, some of the most common questions you get that don't have the word you or your company in them? Because you you don't want a, a question like are you guys open <laughs> or do, do you deliver? Are you but still like in business, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you still in business? Not similar with somebody who doesn't know who you are. And what are the things you're constantly explaining? And what's taking up a lot of your time explaining? And they say, oh, okay. Here, here's an example. These these questions, these questions. They say, would it make it any easier if you were to able to be able to provide? answers beforehand to people so that you didn't have to spend so much time with them and that you could actually help them to qualify themselves better and you could qualify them more quickly. Questions like that. Let me give an example. A story is going to be better because we were talking about Marcus. He had a, he started out as a pool guy. Started in 2001, 2008, real estate crash happened and they almost went out of business. They didn't have any money for advertising. They had to start laying people off and they were actually advised to declare bankruptcy and the three owners were going to have to lose their homes. And so he was still hanging on and he said, you know, I'm just going to start answering every question I ever got from a customer and I'm going to post it on my website until the wolf comes, you know? And it's like, what does a pool cost? What's the benefit of a fiberglass pool? When does a fiberglass pool not make sense? When does a concrete pool better? What's the process? On and all, all the questions he'd ever gotten. Within one year, it was the most trafficked pool site in the world, this guy in rural Virginia. And so then what they later realized was that the difference between people who were closing and those who didn't close when they would go on a visit or on a sit, as they would say in Glen Gary, Glen Ross, were the ones that had visited their website and read a number of the pages. So what they then started doing is what they call assignment selling. And they would say, okay, we're going to, thank you for calling. You're in our service area. We're going to make this appointment. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, send you a little ebook about everything you need to know about buying a fiberglass pool, Th things that you should know. 
like if Marcus's brother were in California and they couldn't serve him, but he'd say, hey, what should I know if to buy one of these pools? That's what he would provide him. Because now we're also going to send you a little video, short video, which outlines the process you go through to getting a pool. Something they shot on their iPhone probably. And it's just like, well, first we get permits and then, you know, we estimate, we size, you know, we dig the hole. We, you know, these are kind of all the 15 steps that happen because that was, they were spending that time. Okay. So they, we're going to send you that video. Now, the day before the appointment, we're going to call you. And if you haven't had a chance to read the ebook or watch the short video, not a problem, but we're going to need to reschedule. They were then closing at 80% of every visit, 79% of every visit they went on. And so that was all content developed from the sales process. It was, do you see how it made it so much easier for the salesperson? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because so, you basically, like you said before, you're, you're, they're self-qualifying. Yeah. And they were better leads. And I only four or five people ever said, no, you come out here. I'm not going to watch the video. <laughs> I'd say, well, that's kind of like, like, I may not want to come out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's kind of like uh, some CEOs saying, yeah, I'm not really bought in. And Jeff Davis saying, bye-bye. Yeah. Uh, so I like, I'll talk so, to you next yeah. year. Yeah. So this was, it gets me so excited is this is content that the salespeople can use to make them even richer. And it's very much related to gaining trust, shortening the sales cycle. And, and a lot of this, it goes, yeah, it's pretty granular, but like using videos before you even have a first sales call, you know, like a personal video. It's a, hi, I'm Jeff Davis. I'm going to be speaking to you. Thanks for setting the appointment. I'm including a couple of links to things that I, that people in your situation traditionally have questions about. And so, uh, but I'm looking forward to uh, speaking to you. Boom. A short little video, you provided some value and they already know you. They, they feel like they already know you. They're more inclined to want to have a conversation and you can use that in prospecting as well. But it has to do with content that is really relevant to the customer. And I seem to recall that earlier we talked about how companies that are most dialed into the customers <laughs> always, always win. Always so, win. Yeah. Well, sir, one last question. Unrelated, but I had to ask you this because- Okay, I know what you're going to ask. Those charges were dropped. <laughs> well, that's, that way, that's a different kind of podcast. That's okay, another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you read so many books. If you were to write a book, what would it be about? Well, that's an interesting question. And people always say, oh, you should write a book. And I'm thinking, well, first off, I'm too busy reading them. I don't feel compelled to write one. Maybe there's imposter syndrome. Maybe it's because I read so many good ones. Yeah, I, just, I don't know that you would even have the time. I mean, because literally my book took, I don't know, a year to write. Like, I don't think people yeah. understand it. It's a lot of work. That's another reason why I have such admiration for these authors, because they put their marriages or their uh, careers or their health- Sleep. Sleep at risk, and they pour out their heart and soul of uh, all the lessons they've learned the hard way in a book. There's, there's no greater ROI than than reading, you know, spending a few hours with an author's book. So as a result, if I had to do one, it would want to. I would want it to be really different, and maybe short because your book keeps coming up. I can't believe. I, I think it's so much more difficult to write a short book than a long book. You know, I found that's one of the reasons I had all, uh, an editor. I found that out going through the process because I specifically went into it. Not that we've talked about this, wanting uh, you know, a CEO or executive to be able to read it on the flight, right? And you know, I'm here in Chicago, stereotypically it takes us what, like two hours to get to New York. So I'm like, can I get it to a point where you get on the flight, you read it, and you get at least 75, if not 80% through? And what I found more often than not is the most challenging thing was not getting the stuff on the page, but it was editing. It's like, okay, we, we've said enough about this, like what do we pull out? 
in order to keep it, you know, succinct, you know, uh, succinct and, and concise. Because you find you you just start repeating stuff and it's verbose and whatever. But if I had to do one, I don't know if you realize this, but a few years back in lieu of a midlife crisis, I started performing stand-up comedy, and I'm all better now. Thank you. And then I did it again uh, like a year ago. But I, I like making people laugh. I like entertaining people. And I was thinking maybe there's a funny book I could write, which is, again, really hard to do. But the thing that I started to zero in on, or at least a book I would want to read, would be a satire. And one of the things that drives me nuts is people that don't have that have like zero humility. More specifically, they don't know what they don't know. And you, you meet a lot of those in business. And I... I thought it would be funny to do like a satire, what uh, these people must be thinking, like a book called Marketing. It's not that hard. And it would have every bit of bad advice about what you definitely should not be doing. For instance, don't worry about the customer's problems. You need to be talking about your product. And if they have a question, that's an objection. You need to overcome it. You know, it's just <laughs> all this terrible advice. That would be funny to me because there's no shortage of marketing charlatans out there <laughs> giving bad advice. I mean, like you mentioned Gary V. That guy has good advice. He knows what he's talking about. But if you flip through your LinkedIn thing, you see these people or you just, I don't know, it just it bothers me. And I, I guess on a personal note, it really bothered me in my career when we would like be hired as an agency to take over from another agency. And there were some times where we saw what that agency had been doing and it was such marketing malpractice. It, it upset me. And I just thought, you know, these folks didn't know what they were hiring. They didn't know what they were doing. So maybe a satire, but if I, I don't know, I don't know if that'll ever, ever happen. Okay. Well, well I guess does, maybe by declaring I'll it publicly, it. I should do it, right? right? That's what I'm saying. I was like, first of all, I'm going to read it if you write it. And then second of all, maybe a publisher will hear this podcast. And oh, who yeah. knows? Anything no. can happen. So, yeah. uh, well, I'll close that. I always have a great conversation with you and we could talk for hours, uh, but I don't know if everybody would, would hang on with us for another hour or two. So for those that want to connect with you, find out more about you uh, as well as Sale Artillery, how can they find you online? Well, salesartillery.com, which is a metaphor. And more importantly, I'm on LinkedIn. And in my on my podcast, what I do is I say, hey, if, you know, because you're a listener, if I can recommend any marketing or sales books or any other resource I know of for whatever your challenge is, message me on LinkedIn and I'll, I'll send you a link to an interview or, or some other resource I know that's helpful. Because I don't want Jeff Davis to have to read 450 sales and marketing books if there's like one or two that would, that would help him right now. And so the same goes for your audience. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And if I can um, I'm, try to include a message that, you know, maybe you heard this interview so that I won't think you're a, you know, some sort of evil spammer. Uh, <laughs> but if I can recommend something, I hear from folks almost every day now where they, they'll ask me about a book or a resource or something. And I'm really happy to hear from them. Otherwise on Twitter, I'm marketing book. Cool. And we'll link those in the show notes. So folks, don't worry, we'll have all the links to Douglas's social so you can reach out to him and, and reference the Revenge of Podcasts and what books that you, you should read in 2023. And yes, on. yes. And we can also share our, you know, Jeff Davis uh, fan trivia. So, you know. I'm down with that too. Well, <laughs> well Mr. Burdett, it has been an amazing conversation as just as I knew that it would be. And again, I encourage folks to take the time to listen to the Marketing Book Podcast. It is a wealth of information, deep dives into a lot of really, really uh, top-notch, insightful books. He's just not picking random books off the shelf. I think you've created, curated, I should say, a really great resource for those that are looking to be to be marketing a little differently. 
uh, and really be relevant to today's modern buyer. And with that said, thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Rev Engine Podcast. I hope today's episode provided you with some actionable insights that will help you begin the process of transforming your organization to a high-performing revenue engine. If you found today's episode valuable, we ask that you support the show's growth in three ways. First, share the episode with your friends and colleagues. Second, follow me on social media at Meet Jeff Davis on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. And finally, give us feedback on who you'd like to see on the show next. That's all for this episode. We look forward to having you join us next time where we continue the conversation on how to build a high-performing revenue engine.